I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Are the leadership and listening skills needed in life or death situations that different than those needed for organizational agility and success? And what about leaving your legacy and having impact beyond your immediate environment? Parker Farley has great tips for both junior and senior leaders, so get ready to take notes. He has led soldiers in combat situations, flown Apache helicopters, and has been a strategic advisor for very senior leaders. He is currently an instructor at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and the Director of National Security Studies, where he's responsible for developing strategic leaders across all military branches. In this episode, Parker shares stories focusing on managing up, dealing with setbacks, even later in your career, and key characteristics that can help lead with agility. He also talks about what you can do to help your leadership reputation as well as help the organization prioritize what it needs for success at the same time. At the end of the podcast, Parker shares his personal three mantras focused towards organizational success. Enjoy listening in. There's some really great stories that you can share that will help people see things, even listening, this listening piece in different perspectives. You've kind of drawn out those parallels that you see between people that you've coached in the situations that they have been in and the leadership experiences that I've had. And, and it's very difficult for me to see because I, you know, I guess for at first glance, I, I when I was more junior, perhaps, and, and less uh, mature in the job, I saw, I did not see the similarities in leadership in the civilian world and the military world. And these days I see that much more often. I see a lot of, a lot of things that intersect and so I think that that it's uh, that this is a great nexus for us to bring that together. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, the conversations we've had lately and what you're doing also teach at the university and you're you're thinking about leadership and what you're interested in finding and how to make even better leaders, even for the military. And I'm also looking at what I'm doing, you know, with at the university or when I'm working in organizations and the topics that are coming up and the challenges that are coming up and what's needed. There's a lot of similarities. But there's also this thing about, you know, working in, in, in an environment where things are changing. You have a plan, you have a strategy, but you have to be ready to adapt. And this is in both situations. And you might be in a situation where you have to guide people in a more life and death situation where it seems like crisis here in corporate world. People sometimes feel like they're life and death situations, even if it's a little bit different. What I'm noticing and what I'm hearing that companies say that they need are some of the same things that you're noticing what's needed even in some of the leadership in the military. So it's, there is some, a lot of similarities, even if the circumstances may be a little different. And Raquel, and I think, I think you're right. I think, so broadly speaking, you know, before we kind of get down to the, the individual level of leadership and how listening impacts leaders interface with their, both with their subordinates as well as with their superiors, I think that, you know, the point that you bring out is that the speed of change in the world today requires leaders who are able, because no, no one has the, the, the mental capacity, or at least very, very few people have the mental capacity to absorb all the variables that weigh on decisions that they make that are around them every day. And so it, it requires a competent team to help those leaders navigate through these, these very difficult waters and this environment and the speed of change. In the military, we coined an acronym called VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's a, it's a hand wave definition that says this is the environment in which we operate today. The world is not 
black and white. There are so many shades of gray. And those shades of gray, who is a, who is a potential adversary, who is a potential ally, all of the things going on in the world that weigh on what it is that we have to do means that, you, just like you said, you may come up with a plan or a strategy. But every day something is changing in the assumptions that you made in that strategy. Your ability to adjust to that environment in a rapid manner is what's going to make an organization successful. Well, how would you describe an agile leader or what are the qualities that you see in an agile leader? I think there, there are some, some key things that, that help leaders be more agile. So number one, I, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily the most important thing, but it is certainly what comes to mind for me first, and that's intellectual curiosity. It's, it's about people who want to know things simply to know things. When I wanted to find out some information, I would go to the encyclopedia set that we had, and I would dig through the encyclopedia. I would come across 50 different articles that were just fascinating. And I'd read them on the way to finding what it was I was trying to find out. Now, obviously, that meant I, I probably was not the most efficient searcher of information. But all of that other knowledge, all of that other stuff that was, that was present within the encyclopedia was interesting. And it, and, and it begged curiosity. Unfortunately, today, people don't dig through the encyclopedias to find information. They go into Google or whatever other oracle they use. They type in whatever the search term is that they want. And 1,367,000 results come up in 0.45 seconds, specifically tailored to the information for which they're searching. The problem with that is, is there's no journey to the information. From an intellectual curiosity point, it requires someone to make real effort today to fulfill and maintain that intellectual curiosity. Broadly speaking, we have people that are very, very highly capable, intelligent, and developed individuals in very, very narrow fields. I mean, they're amazing in the field in which they operate. Unfortunately, bringing them outside of that comfort zone and engaging them on other topics is a real challenge for them. So when you so taking that into consideration and this example of you know even the journey through the encyclopedia and also this example of of a leader who is really good in this narrow area what would help them to become more intellectually curious what would help them Well I, I you know I think there are a couple aspects of that and I'll 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 save kind of the developmental piece from the developed piece. The developmental piece is diverse experiences in their youth. A diversity of experience in their youth is going to help them see that there is more world out there than what's simply in their yard or in their neighborhood. And so that, that's, that's beneficial. People don't necessarily have control of that, but I think that, that is, that's pretty critical. The other part of that is, and you and I have spoken about this before, We've, we have both fairly extensively studied other languages. Language, studying a language is kind of the first step into understanding other cultures. Having the intellectual curiosity to delve into a language, I think, is indicative of someone's intellectual curiosity to find out about the world that is not right in front of them, where they, they at least get a taste of some other cultures, can develop that hunger for more knowledge along the way. And that's not just a cultural hunger. Hopefully, that works itself into a hunger for knowledge writ large, whether that's you know, a, a broad knowledge of science along with culture, along with history. So all of that, I think, is, is fairly critical. So that's the development part of it. And I think that we all, all of us who are parents, can help our children develop that by putting them in the right situations where they can see that knowledge about something other than one narrow field is, is very beneficial to them. But I do want to talk a little bit about the developed leader. So 
I'm an assistant professor in an adult education environment. So I am not a believer that you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Many of our innate skills, attributes, characteristics are formed much more early in life than where we see our leaders at today. So that intellectual curiosity can be replicated in an organization through surrounding yourself with the appropriate subordinates, staff, support personnel who have the, that diverse knowledge base and to whom you listen a great deal and get your understanding of this VUCA environment, they are the ones that can help fill those gaps for, for a leader. Even if you have a diverse group of people around you, how do you actually get, you know, get stuff out of them? Yeah. Because just because you have people around you doesn't mean you've engaged. Doesn't mean that you actually, you actually get what they have to offer. So I, as I mentioned, I've been a commander at a level, what we call a battalion level. And, and in a non, in a non deployed environment. So when I'm at my stateside duty station, you know, we, we had, oh, I guess uh, 500 and some change soldiers in the unit one when deployed to con- combat, the, the unit grew pretty significantly. The interesting thing is most of those people within that organization are very similar to me. They may not all, and at the time I was a lieutenant colonel, they may not all have been lieutenant colonels. They may not have all had 20 years experience, but they had been trained and formed and created, if you will, in an environment this military environment that kind of drives how we think about things. And so it's, it's interesting because in the military, we, we talk about diversity and, and, and certainly we have diverse groups. We've got minorities, we have females, we have people from different cultural backgrounds who come into the military. But if you take a group of diverse individuals and, and that's so, gender diversity, racial diversity, cultural diversity, sexual orientation diversity, whatever that is, and you put them in a room, you take, let's say 20, you randomly choose 20 army army officers of a very diverse background, and you put them in a room. They're going to think about problems in much the same way. So there may be racial, cultural, gender diversity, but there is certainly not diversity of thought. So there's, there's not much diversity of thought and so one of the mistakes that I think that we make in, in many organizations is mistaking diversity, you know, walk into the room and there's a, a rainbow of, of different people in the room, mistaking that diversity with diversity of thought. But if the only metric that you're using is I've got to have represent, you know, a cross-section of representation in this team to support the leader, you're kind of starting off on the wrong foot. Because what you're really seeking is someone who fills the gaps for the leader. We all have knowledge gaps. We all have those blind spots that we don't see in a leadership position. I need someone on my team who fills those blind blind spots, which means number one, I have to understand where my blind spots are. That's my weaknesses. Those things that those things where I am simply not generally competent or where I, I often don't think about these things. So I have to understand who that's going to be and is going to fill that spot. Broadly speaking, that's the support team that, that a leader needs for successful decision-making in this, in this very, very complex environment that will help lead organizational agility, which kind of falls on the heels of the leader's agility. I was going to say the second part of that is is a little bit more individualistic in nature. You know, the, the military is a very strictly hierarchical organization. And so the requirement is that as a leader, you're not simply listening to people, but you're actually hearing what they're saying. And I'll explain that a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that people are rolling their eyes right now. But, it, but what it really comes down to in a hierarchical environment is, is many times your subordinates are reluctant 
to voice disagreement with your chosen course of action. And the reason they're reluctant, you know, so so take my you know my example as a as a lieutenant colonel, a battalion commander. Some of the I was uh, I don't know forty forty two years old, I guess, roughly at that point in time, roughly nineteen or twenty years in the military, a few thousand hours of flight time, ground combat, lots of experience all over the world. I did not have a monopoly on all of the good ideas, nor were all of my ideas good. But the people who might advise me or who might say, hey, sir, I don't think that's a great idea, are some of them are 24, 25-year-old staff officers who have been in the military for two or three years. Some of them are NCOs, non-commissioned officers, who may have been in the military for a while, but are significantly lower in rank than I am. They may try to sugarcoat their words if they disagree with your chosen course of action so that they don't seem offensive or so that they don't, you know, depending on how they view your leadership, so that they don't get get themselves in trouble. So the key thing for a leader is to understand that what people say may not necessarily be 100% of what they mean. And you have, to, uh, you have to realize that if, a, if someone who is significantly subordinate to you comes up and makes a suggestion, something has driven them to that. Because generally speaking, people are reluctant to do that. So if they have come forward and said that, something has driven that, them to that. Something in their mind is serious that you're overlooking or you're missing. There's a piece of the puzzle that's not there. So it's worthwhile to take some time and delve into that a little bit deeper and have a dialogue about it. Now, maybe it's maybe what they think is simply due to lack of experience. And that's great because that then becomes a teaching moment for them. You can say, hey, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. And that is something that we need to take into consideration. However, prioritizing this over that is more important. And that helps that helps them become better leaders in the future. And so that's the one thing where a teaching moment and this other moment where maybe there's something that you might have missed or something that would help you make or information they have that will influence a change in your decision? Yeah. So there's something that that I frequently would tell the the soldiers that I was incredibly fortunate to lead. As the, the commander of the organization, at the tactical level, that is the level in which we execute our daily tasks, whether that's in combat or in a, in a non-deployed garrison environment. I am, me, the battalion commander, I am the least important person in the organization. And I would, I, that was a mantra that I kept telling people. And I said, hey, listen, my job is to prioritize, that is, let you know what's important, because there's every organization has more things on their plate than they can possibly accomplish. So a leader needs to prioritize. This is more important. This is less important. So my job was to prioritize, resource, and remove obstacles. I needed every single person in my organization to do their job for the organization to be successful. But almost no one in the organization needed me in order to do their job. All of their jobs done together created success for the organization. But once I set the priority and ensured that the resources were appropriately distributed in accordance with those priorities, at that time, I was just around for crisis management. That's not a day-to-day thing. That is an, an episodic sporadic occurrence. So on a normal day-to-day basis, I've done my job. I set the priorities. I distributed the resources, gave that guidance that was necessary for the organization to move forward. If I got hit by a bus, in theory, no one would notice. But every other single individual in that organization has to do their tasks on a daily basis for the organization to be successful. But this also means that they need to understand what's 
their task means for the whole. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And so, and so what we what we do is we have this. Uh, so it's a it's a concept we call mission command, and there's been some. Really, there's been some debate about what we call it in the Army more so than debate about actually implementing it. So what Mission Command is essentially is is telling people what the end state of the organization is, letting them know what their left and right limits are towards achieving that end state. So like their boundaries. Their boundaries and giving them the resources that they need to achieve it but not sitting on their shoulder and saying, this is exactly how you need to do this. Now left foot, now right foot, now left foot, now right foot. Germans call it Auftragstaktik. Say that again slower. (laughs) Auftragstaktik. Allowing your subordinates to do their job means that your subordinates are actually going to do their job because they have a belief and understanding that they're aspect of that job, no matter how small their aspect of the overall mission, no matter how small and inconsequential that it seems, is critical to the success of the organization, critical to the organization's mission. And that's, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, in, in in a very large, very diverse organization, that's a challenge to ensure that each person understands that their role serves a purpose in the overall greater good because it's very, very easy for people way down the ladder to get lost in the, why am I sticking this widget in this hole every day? Going back to the time where you were a lieutenant colonel and you were responsible for the, now I'm probably not getting the jargon right. It was a battalion? That's correct, a battalion. Okay, so there was you said there were six hundred people in the battalion. Yeah, and and when we were in uh, when we were in Port Raleigh, Kansas, uh, it was a little over six hundred. But yeah, that's a good round number. Okay, and this is the group that you went to Afghanistan with. That's correct. Okay, so I think that this experience was a huge learning curve for you as a leader. Perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but but I think not in the way that is that most people would assume. But yes. Okay, so tell me more about that. Most of the jobs that we go into through the course of our career, we are not specifically trained or ready for that job. So just as an example, as a junior captain, I was the intelligence officer for a battalion and we deployed to Bosnia. I had no training, no prior training as an intelligence officer. There was, uh, you know, I showed up at the unit. They said, we need an intelligence officer. Congratulations, you're the intelligence officer. Another example, I, uh, a unit that, uh, in which I was uh, assigned in Germany as I was waiting to take company command, a much smaller element. For a year, I served as the brigade personnel officer. So brigade at, you know, at that point in time, it's about 4,000 people. I was the essentially the HR person for that brigade. No personnel training whatsoever. Showed up. Hey, this guy is leaving. We need you to fill this slot while you wait to take command. Voila, you're the S, we call it the S1, the personnel officer for a year. Many of the assignments that, you, that you'll be given throughout the course of military career, that's kind of the way that runs. Command assignments, that is... Platoon leader, company command, battalion command, brigade command, every single thing that you do in the Army as you move up the ranks is designed to make you successful at that job. When I took battalion command, it was the most well-trained and well-prepared for any job that I had taken in my entire career. What I wasn't ready for is my immediate supervisor and encountering someone that that it was such a challenge for me to communicate with him, to help him understand the challenges that we had, how he could best prioritize our work and missions uh, to prepare us to go to combat, and how he could ensure that the initiatives that he saw as important supported that combat mission because at the end of the day they, that's why we exist we exist to to 
go to war and win those victories and bring bring everyone home. I, mean, I know this is probably not the right, I don't know if this is a wording that you would use in the military, but what you what I hear often is, you know, this is how do I manage up? Yeah, no, that's exa- we, that's certainly what, what we, uh, the terminology that we use. Okay. I was demonstrably failing, or let me put this in past tense, I demonstrably failed at that. At managing and you've up. never failed at that before? No, not even, not even a little. You know, he, he came in and he said all the right things. He said, hey, listen, you know, I don't have a monopoly on good ideas. I really want to hear what it is that, that you guys have to say. If there's something that, that I'm pushing that, that you don't think is a good idea or you think there's a better way to achieve the same thing, I want very, very open and candid discussion about it. And what I failed to recognize early was that he was not sincere. He only wanted to get your input if you thought that his idea was the best thing ever. I tend to be very candid anyway. And so I was, I was pretty happy. I was like, oh, this is great. You know, somebody's really open. They're willing to listen to things. And, and, you know, and typically speaking, the way that goes, if you have that in relationship with a superior, he says, hey, we're going we're gonna to go left. You come into his office, you say, you know, I don't think it's a really good idea that we go left. I think maybe we should go right. And he says, yep, I heard what you just said. I still want to go left. You say, yes, sir, we'll go left. That's kind of the way that works. Or, you know, hopefully he says, you know what, that's a really great idea. You're right. We should go right. But either way, this, you know, there's an open exchange and, 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 and you, you have that communication. So unfortunately with this guy, he would say, we're going to go left. He'd go into his office and he'd say, hey, sir, I see. I understand why you want to go left. I really think we should go right. And he would lose his mind. So it took me a little while to understand his lack of sincerity, which probably says something to my lack of ability to, to actually learn. Because it, it, it took me some what I call blunt force trauma learning and some scar tissue to figure that out. What I figured out later on, which was those things that I need to challenge him on are only those things that are critical to soldiers' lives and to mission. Because prior to that, I was having a more open and candid conversation about many different things, which I think gave him the impression that I was just one of those people who pushed back on everything. That So I, I got to the point towards the end where I chose only those battles that I thought were absolutely critical and where mission success or soldiers' lives was at risk. Did something shift in your approach or what you learned either and what you would, if you were to share that with people, leaders, upcoming leaders in terms of what's important to pay attention to your myself as a leader and what, you know, how to pick and choose those battles, let's say. I wish I could produce a magic bullet for you. So, so number one, and I, and, and I know that not every organization deals with life and death decisions on a consistent basis, but every organization does deal with success or failure decisions on a, on a daily basis or, or a near daily basis. And so I would say that in choosing your battles, until you have the, the lesson that I learned from my situation is until you have a real gauge of a person's character, until you genuinely know and understand who they are, then you probably only need to plant your flag on those issues where critical success or failure hinges on the outcome of that decision. Beyond that, you're putting yourself at some risk. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that from a selfish perspective. In my organization, because I fell out of favor with my boss, then my entire organization, that whole battalion that I, was, that I led, fell out of favor with my boss. And so we as an organization were maltreated as a result of my actions. So it's important early on, again, until you get that real measure of a person's character, that, that you're only going to speak up if you have a, you know, if you're managing up, if you think that your boss is making a misstep. Well, there are some missteps that you just kind of grin and say, okay, that's the way we're going to do it. And I'm not even going to engage the boss on it. There are those things that, that the 
you know, the outcome of your endeavors depends upon how that goes. And, and maybe that's uh, something that you bring up. But if you're if you are the chicken little sky is falling on every single topic that the boss brings up that you don't agree with, you'll marginalize yourself very, very quickly. And especially if if you have a leader that I was unfortunate enough to serve with. Now, ironically, you and I spoke about this previously, ironically, to kind of put the bow on this. His conduct uh, resulted in, in several investigations where he was found at, at fault. And unfortunately, some of those investigations had pretty significantly bad outcomes. And many of those things were things that I had tried to advise him against. Anyway, long story short, you know, after he came to me more towards the end of his tenure, apologized, said that uh, he saw that that those things that I was trying to advise him on were simply to help the organization avoid risk or mitigate risk, I guess is the right terminology. And he apologized and, and his subsequent evaluation of me was was very, very good. But there was a long period there where that was a real struggle for me as a leader to work successfully within that organization. Parker, I've known you for a long, long time. And you have always been kind of a, let's see, I don't know how you would describe yourself, but high achiever, right? <laughs> Whether grades were good, you know, always exercising and, and being the best at what you can do and being the best, at every, you just want to be the best at everything that you do. And you have ex- high expectations. So I would say an extreme, extreme high performer person <laughs> would put you in that category. I don't know how you'd see yourself, but I'd see you there. I would say that my, my reality doesn't meet my aspirations. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, maybe. Well, so, okay, with that, you're, so your reality doesn't meet your aspirations. Okay, so... I'm going to just take a little detour on this. So, so you have these expectations also for your for yourself as a leader and and what you're trying to do. And sometimes in, with high performers, now could be this is the case with you, or maybe not. But sometimes we keep moving on to the next, to the next, to the next, and we don't realize what we've all accomplished or how we've influenced things in our past. You know, and to take that time to reflect and see what's really happened, listening to what we've accomplished versus going on to the next thing and having to reach higher. Well, I, I think that there's two aspects of that, Raquel. The, the, perhaps the first aspect is how leaders deal with setbacks. It is, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of alluded to, to my background a little bit. I've been very fortunate to be pretty successful at most of the the things that that I've that I've wanted to do and had not really had any professional setbacks if you will or any setbacks in the goals that I had set for myself until this this incident with uh, with this brigade commander if you're a captain in the military you're going to be a company commander assuming you don't do something immoral illegal or unethical and that's not necessarily reflective of your leadership skills. It's just we, we make captains, company commanders. But I think in civilian organizations, as we get to organizational leaders, for the most part, these are people who have been successful. They have, and so that first time that, that real, well, frankly, real failure happens may be very difficult for them to adjust to. I think that there is... For me personally, the key piece was to realize exactly what I said previously. I am the least important person in that organization. So wallowing in self-doubt or, man, what's this going to mean for my career? What All of this other stuff is not appropriate to the future success of the organization and those you know, 600 plus soldiers that are in that organization and how they see, how they feel about the organization. So the bottom line is, you know, put it, putting it very, very, putting a very fine point on it. The organization still has to live, survive and succeed. And if the leader keeps looking back and recriminating themselves on this situation, then they're not 
going to have the bandwidth necessary to lead the organization to future success. That does not at all mean that you should look at the situation and learn from it. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do an after-action review and figure out what missteps you made, how you could have done things better. But wallowing in it is not going to be successful. So that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect of it is we all we all leave a thumbprint, if you will, both on an organization, but probably more importantly on the individuals that are in that organization. And that's our legacy as we move forward. And it is incredibly difficult to see what that legacy is when you're the person who is in the leadership chair. You have so first of all, we all struggle with self-awareness. Everyone does. You know, they, the, the common cliche is that there are each of us, there are three of us. There's who you view, who you think you are, who everyone else thinks you are, and who you really are. That mirror on, on our self-awareness kind of indicates that we all have a very, very difficult time seeing who we are. And consequently, we have a very, very difficult time understanding the impact that we have on those organizations that we're fortunate enough to lead. Were you just someone who was occupying the seat, kind of temporary help, and you moved on, and there was not a wave made when you came in and not a wave made when you left? Or are you someone who was able to genuinely, hopefully positively, affect the lives of the individuals within that organization? And I've got two kind of vignettes for that. When I was a, a junior officer, as a, as a lieutenant, I was assigned as a platoon leader in Korea great organization. The battalion in which, to which I was assigned was a, a great organization with a great leader. The, the battalion commander went on to become a three-star general, really, really good guy. But at that point in time, you know, as a, as a platoon leader, you know, I was like a teenager who can't wait to be 16 and get their driver's license and then can't wait to be 18 and have freedom and can't wait to be 21 and be able to go drink. I, you know, I was, the, I was the platoon leader and I couldn't wait to become a leader of an organization at a high enough level to really make a difference. I had I, I, I 45-ish or so soldiers, then I moved forward, and a few, like, few years later, I became a company commander, uh, and I had about 80 soldiers. And, and you know, you just keep traipsing forward, and you, I, know, I, need, I need to be a leader of a bigger organization. What level is that where you can really, really make a difference in soldiers' lives? And one day, I kind of had an epiphany. I had successfully made the goal that I set for myself, which was to be a battalion commander. And I said, I said, oh, yeah, but this is, you know, this is 600 soldiers in garrison, 800 in, in combat. I need to, I want to get to the point where I can really make a difference in soldiers' lives. And I had this little epiphany and I said, okay, that's ridiculous. You make a difference in the lives of the soldiers that you touch every day, the soldiers that you spend time with every day, the soldiers the lives of their, their families and, and their well-being and their mission focus every day. And it doesn't matter if you're leading one soldier or if you're leading 10,000 soldiers. Your focus needs to be on what you're doing today. So that was one little epiphany that came to me very late, unfortunately. Do you remember the moment that it was or something? No, there, there wasn't really a catalyst. It was, it was just, I, you know, I kept, I kept kind of, I kept striving for more. And it wasn't as if I was not actively making an impact on those soldiers that I was leading. It's just in my mind, I was like, wow, this is great. I really like this. This is, this is what I've always dreamed about doing there. And I kept thinking to myself, I can't wait until I can get to the next level and fix all these things that are, that are, that are broken. All these things that waste soldiers time, all these things that, that are inefficient and ineffective. And when it's, when really what it's about is focusing on the job that you have at hand and making that difference for those soldiers that you're leading at the time. And that's very cliche, but it, you know, it took a little while for me, me to figure that out. So that was one piece. And then the other vignette, Paul, while I was in DC, a friend wanted me to come to the Pentagon and meet him. I got the understanding that we were going to go uh, out someplace and grab a coffee. I showed up there. He said, Hey, let's get some coffee at the Pentagon. I had a pocket knife with me. I carry a pocket knife pretty much all the time. I, was under the impression that a that someone who worked at the Pentagon could carry a pocket knife, but visitors couldn't. So I handed him my pocket knife, said, hey, Bob, can you take this in? I'll get it for me when we come out after we've had coffee. Yeah, sure. He put it in his pocket. He went to go to the employee's entrance. I went through the visitor's entrance. 
which includes a security screening, just like you would go through it at an airport. Our exchange of the pocket knife was seen on a camera. And subsequently, we were both arrested and charged with trying to circumvent Pentagon security procedures, which was very interesting. I mean, I was not in uniform. Bob was in uniform. He had two active duty Army colonels arrested and handcuffed at the entrance to the Pentagon and, and marched, uh, you know, marched into the, the Pentagon holding cells, which I didn't know existed. But, yes. <laughs> you didn't realize you would see that part of the Pentagon. No, not so much. Not so much. So anyway, long story short, from that perspective, I, I, I was I was misinformed. Employees were not allowed to take pocket knives, uh, you know, that a pocket knife like that into the into the Pentagon. And so I asked Bob to do something and, and I did it. I did it in plain view, not trying to hide it. I felt that I was doing something in order to comply with the regulation, not to break the regulation. This time I was the I was a, a strategic advisor and special assistant to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe who is also the United States European Command commander. He is a four-star general, and I traveled with him pretty frequently. The person who handled within that organization who handled the discipline for Army officers was a two-star located elsewhere in Europe who I'd never met. So this two-star writes a letter of reprimand. It's a very, very scathing letter of reprimand that you know I was purposefully trying to circumvent the Pentagon's rules for my own convenience, showing a lack of integrity and forthrightness and all this other stuff. And then he sent me the note, the the letter of reprimand, and said, hey, I'm trying to decide whether this will go into your permanent file, thus ending my career, or into your temporary file, which is exactly what it says. Goes in your temporary file as long as you keep your nose clean for a little while, it goes away into the into the trash can. So I read this letter for the first time. This person clearly doesn't know me. My honor and integrity are absolutely something that is I cannot compromise on. This is, you know, I've spent my entire career building my reputation. And this one incident and this one piece of paper are going to destroy that reputation. If I, I send a note out to a few people from that battalion, as well as a couple of other friends. And I said, hey, can I get a, a character reference letter? Just And I explained the entire situation to him. And I said, and all I'm looking for is you to write a letter that says that this is not reflective of my character. This is, a, this is an incorrect characterization of who I am. Raquel, I got to tell you, and I had, I think I had maybe seven days, if I recall, to turn around this packet, basically submit a rebuttal. In about four days, I had 80-plus letters from people with whom I had served, multiple services, from the rank of people who had served, who who had worked for me when they were as low as E2 or E3, like a private first class, all the way up to other four-star generals. Not my boss. My boss had to recuse himself, uh, the four-star at that time, but other four-star generals. And all of these attesting to my character. Wow. So what was most impactful from this was the vast majority of these letters, the vast majority of these letters were from the battalion, you know, members of the battalion that I had, that I had led. And all of them talking about how this was, how this, this letter of reprimand so contrary to my character because of the individual things that I had done for these soldiers that changed their lives. The exa- examples that I had set that changed who they were, how they viewed things, how they viewed things, how they viewed leadership, how they viewed the organization, how they viewed their mission in their army, how they interacted with their family, took care of their kids, all of these things. Specific examples of, you know, Colonel Frawley did this. And and this changed the way I conduct myself. So I say all of that not to not to demonstrate how great of a person I am. What that really did for me, I, I'll tell you, Rock. When when I read these things, I was I was in tears because when we go through our daily lives as a leader, those things that we do are just what we think leaders do. But if you're fortunate enough to have the right organization and to be the right leader, then that legacy is going to live on far beyond. You know, and the first little vignette I gave was, you know, at what point 
do you lead an organization large enough where you can really make a difference? Well, with an organization of over 800 people just deployed to combat, people that I was able to interact with every day, plus their family members, those junior leaders that you are helping to become senior leaders will in the future lead very, very large organizations. That legacy that you leave with them impacts literally thousands. Again, another epiphany where I said, I've been an effective leader and the tools that I have left these soldiers, they're going to carry with them. And hopefully that will make them more effective leaders in the future. And so I really have had the opportunity to affect organizations far beyond the one in which I, you know, in which I hung my hat. I never imagined that I was blessed enough to have that impact across that broad swath of, of the organization. And it was, uh, it was something else. I, I, so I, 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 of course, kept all of that, all those letters, not so much to feed my ego, which is, I've been told, doesn't need feeding. <laughs> but to remind myself that the, that the smallest things, really, the smallest things, things that you don't even consider will have an impact, are going to carry over, are going to build your reputation, and are going to be something that people see as a window into who you are and will carry that with them. Can you give me an example? Yeah, I, I can I can probably come up with one. I took command in April, we deployed in August to Afghanistan. So this was just a couple of days after I had taken command. Most of the battalion, most of those 600 soldiers, we're doing a basically a safety stand down day, which is this, uh, you know, the army has a lot of mandatory annual training that you have to undergo to, you know, that's just by, by regulation, this is mandatory annual training. Much of that training is, is safety oriented. So most of the battalion, we had scheduled to have that they would sit down for the entire day in the post theater and kind of go through this whole round robin of required safety, annual required safety training, just to knock it all out, get it out of the way so we could move on towards other things on which we needed to focus to prepare for a successful combat deployment. As I mentioned, I had, I'd been in command just a few days. So while the majority of the battalion was doing that, there were a, we were having a staff meeting and, and I, was, I was getting some briefings on what the training plan was going forward to get us ready to, to go out the door to Afghanistan. My executive officer, the, the second in charge of the battalion, got a phone call while we were in the meeting. He looked at his phone. He said, hey, sir, I have to take this. I'm sorry. He stepped out of the, out of the office. He came back in and kind of had a worried look on his face. And I said, what is it, Lee? And he said, sir, the, the whole battalion is standing outside the theater. The doors are locked. Apparently, no one scheduled, actually scheduled the theater. So we have nowhere to do this training. I, in turn, looked at our safety officer, and I said, hey, Thad, did you schedule the theater, or did they drop the ball and not show up? Uh, yes, sir, I messed that up. I did schedule the theater. Okay, that's fine. I said, Lee, call, call them back. Tell all the leadership they're at the theater with their soldiers to take them back to their place of work and kind of get on with the plan of the day. We will reschedule this. So, you know, long story, but and I'll, I'll kind of come back around to that. But but here I had had 600-ish soldiers who were standing outside of before they called up to the headquarters. They waited for some period of time. If you figure all the time involved, well over an hour or an hour and a half lost as they transported back and forth, all this other stuff. So you're talking somewhere between 600 to 900 man hours wasted. Which is quite a bit. Which is a lot, yeah. Which is quite a bit, and it's and it's just it's not only is it wasted in terms of all of the things that we needed to accomplish for a successful deployment, and and instead I've got people standing out in the sun. But you know we take a lot of time away from soldiers. We take them away from their family for a year or fifteen months at a time. So if I've got them at work and I don't have them gainfully employed, I am wasting their time, and that is in my mind that is. I mean, that borders on the criminal. I'm going to take this young soldier away from his wife and his child for, for a year or for 15 months. 
And, and before we deploy, I've just got him standing around outside, not doing anything constructive. That is utterly irresponsible. So it's one of the, it, we waste a lot of time in the army and it's one of my biggest pet peeves. So I got in touch with all the company level leadership. So understand that at, at, you know, the battalion is subordinate to a brigade. Companies are subordinate to a battalion. And so I had six companies. I got in touch with the company commanders and the first sergeants of those companies. And I said, hey, I want to meet with platoon level organizations tomorrow. I'll come down to your footprint. I need about 10 minutes. And so I went down the next day. I spent the entire day going around to small groups of soldiers. And I apologized. And I said, hey, listen, all of you stood outside the theater for safety training yesterday we wasted your time. We we failed to appropriately coordinate to get the theater open. That wasted your time. There is nothing that infuriates me more than us just utterly having nothing for you to do or not appropriately and efficiently spending the time that we have you. I am sorry. This is my fault. This organization, I lead this organization. So the successes the successes belong to all of you for doing your job, but the failures, those are the things that I should be able to control, that I should see, and that I should head off. This is my fault. This is my fault. I talked to all of the soldiers in small groups. My intent had been to ensure that all of the leadership in the battalion, that's all the platoon leaders, company commanders, first sergeants, platoon sergeants, all of my staff knew that I took wasting soldiers' time very, very seriously. If the boss is going to take an entire day to apologize for wasting soldiers' time, then I expected that the outcome of that would be much less wasted time in the future for soldiers. Interestingly enough, on those letters that I got for that incident, those letters, those character letters, Several soldiers mentioned that as an indication that the organization was changing, was going to change, that this, that this was going to be something that took their needs, that took what was important to them seriously while still enabling the organization to meet our mission. And frankly, that had a lasting impact because that was really the first impression that most of those soldiers had of me was the boss taking responsibility, ultimate responsibility for something that was messed up and vowing to change it. It's not like I had to do anything in order to get it to change in the future because the leadership saw that it was important enough for me to go out and kind of do that apology tour, if you will. And they knew that if they wasted soldiers' time, I was going to be very displeased. So, so for me, sure, it took some time, but I didn't think much of it. But the lasting impact that that had on the soldiers that I was very soon to lead into combat, I never would have guessed that. And you think about that particular situation and the fact that you probably went and made it personal, you know, and, and you because you not only taking responsibility, but also showing that you really cared. Yeah, I think that that's a big thing. You know, it's interesting because the leaders, you know, are too busy. They're very People are very busy. And so it's like a lot of times when it comes to doing things like the, that, often we don't have time for those types of things. But really, if you think about it, it actually saved a lot of time and made things more effective. It, it did. And Maybe it, that, that day it did not, but afterwards. Well, and, and Raquel, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll latch on to something that you just spoke about right there, which is leaders being very busy. I don't disagree with you. I was exceedingly busy. But I was not as busy as a leader. And what I mean by busy is I mean my my calendar of scheduled things that I have to do to meet someone else's requirements were not as full as a leader as they had been when I was a staff officer, when I was the XO of the unit, the second in charge of the unit, when I was the the operations officer of the unit. That was busy because – and I, I said this before – in a successful organization, the senior leader, the capo of that organization, should do only those things that he or she must do. 
if you're doing something that a subordinate can do, most likely the subordinate can either A, do it better than you can because they have the recency of experience and all the information necessary to do it, or B, can do it well enough so that you can focus on leading the organization, not doing nug stuff. So was I busy? Yes, I was busy. I was busy being out of my office, out on the ground, walking around, talking to soldiers, observing how we were doing things, finding friction points and areas of our greatest risk, doing my best to mitigate that risk, coaching, teaching, mentoring junior officers and NCOs to make them better. But I was not sitting at my desk, answering emails, answering the phone, you know, drawing up PowerPoint presentations, none of that. That's not my job. I've got other people to do that. So when you say busy, yes, busy. But it's busy being a commander. And frankly, going around and telling the soldiers that this is not how I will allow this organization to be run, that's leading the organization. So that wasn't, in my mind, that wasn't taking time away from being the leader, that was being the leader. How much time do you think, how much of your time was spent listening versus speaking? Do you have a sense of that? Honestly, I would say that getting input from from soldiers, from junior leaders, so that I could understand their situation, understand, have a, a clearer picture of the challenges that were in front of them, how I could better, because I told you, you know, leaders, leaders prioritize resource and remove obstacles. So how I could better resource and remove those obstacles, I'm kind of shooting from the hip here, but I would say that required me to be listening about 70% of the time and, and talking or making noises come out of my mouth about 30% of the time. Because because the reality of it is, in this mission command that about which I spoke, or Auftragstaktik, again, I when a young platoon leader, a young company commander presents this challenge to me that they, they've been trying to work their way through, if it's not critical, if it's not life or death, if it's not mission failure or success at that moment, I'm probably going to give them a couple more tools that they can put in their kit bag that they can help to solve that challenge on their own. More listening, hearing how they're working their way through it. That helps me evaluate them, by the way, as you know, in their future potential, how are they working through this challenge? And then saying, well, you know, that's great. I think you're going about this the right way. You kind of need to continue on the, ta- the track that you're on. Or I say, yeah, I can see why you would have gone that way. Here are a couple of other things that you could think about that might be successful. And then allowing them to carry that forward to continue getting after the challenge, getting after the problem. What's one question that I should have asked that I haven't asked, Parker? Wow, we've talked about a lot, Raquel. (laughs) Was there something else you'd like to share? Either way. Well, so I will tell you that there's three little mantras that – so this this sounds really – I don't know, wonky or, or stilted or something. I don't know. But I had a dry erase board uh, next to my desk at the office, and I wrote three things on it. And these are the three things that that I, I tried to focus on each day to make our organization successful. So one of those things, which I've said before, is that never forget that you are on a day-to-day normal operations. You're the least important person in the organization as the leader. Number two, that it's a leader's job as things get translated from our higher headquarters through me down to my subordinate units, it's a leader's job to be a filter, not a funnel. So my job, when I say filter, not funnel, is to take those motions that come from that much higher headquarters and dampen them so that my soldiers, the individuals who are executing that task, aren't whipped all over the place. And then the third I see that in corporate world too. <laughs> yes, yes. And then the third piece, the, the third little mantra is that I had a stool. So imagine a three-legged stool that I had drawn on the board. The seat of the stool is the team. So in the in the team, I'm you know, I'm part of Team Army. 
each person has a role to play. And those roles that we play in the team are the legs of that stool. Every one of us is a player. In other words, we're on the battlefield and we are affecting the outcome of that battle, just like a player on a team anywhere. Every one of us is a teammate. We have peers. Those peers have expectations for us. We're mut- we are mutually supporting. I get things from them to help me complete my task. They get things from me to help them complete their tasks. So that makes us a teammate. And every one of us is a coach. We have got someone, except for at the very, very lowest level, we've got someone who's working for us. And so we have three roles to play in. And as we go through our day-to-day for a battalion commander, I'm a player for the brigade commander. Yes, this guy that I didn't get along particularly well with. He's my coach. I'm his player. I coach the 600 and some odd soldiers that were part of my battalion. I'm a teammate or a peer to those other battalion commanders that are resident within that brigade and, frankly, other battalion commanders outside the brigade. Yeah, nice. And I love the, the fact that you have those kind of there also, you know, partially words, partially visuals, just as a reminder to glance up at every so often. Yeah, it's, uh, I, it, you know, like I said, it's, it sounds like it's a little bit geeky or wonky. I mean, do you really need, do you really need something written on a board for your, for who you are as a, your core, what you believe your core things are, but, but in the heat of the moment or when you get frustrated or whatever that is, take a step back. And it matters. Yeah. And it matters. Yep. Yeah. I have one more question. I'm just How would you describe our conversations, Parker? Because, you know, here's me, you know, your, your pacifist friend. <laughs> Peace, girl, and you're, you know, Mr. <laughs> Military. <laughs> I'm Island Girl, you're High Achiever Guy. <laughs> if you think about our conversations over the years, how would you describe them? So I think the basis of, because you're right, we're different people. We're, well, let me rephrase that. Superficially, we're different people. Right. And, and so the reason that I think that we've had such a long and successful friendship and been able to, even as we, even as our, as our paths have diverged and, and we, we have become seemingly more polar opposites, is that we have, we know enough about one another that we have a mutual respect and believe that the stances that we take on things are, come from a genuinely good and well-meaning, well-intentioned place. And that, that allows that mutual respect that lets us hear differing opinions and not just discount them out of hand or believe the worst about someone because their opinions vary from yours. And for us, you know, I, I do think that it's probably a, a lesson writ large, I mean, especially in the society in the United States right now, as polarized as we are. You know, it seems like people can't even begin to listen to one another the second that there is a variance of opinion. But the reality of it is, is for you and I, our opinions vary on some very important things in a significant way. I think honest people, integrity is, is extremely important to us. We're good family people. We believe in the strength of friendships and that we would do anything for those people that we love and care about and that there are ways that there is good and evil in the world and that there are ways that you can challenge that good and evil. I challenge it in one way, you challenge it in another and that we can make the people around us better. If you look at it from that perspective, that's not quite so dichotomous. No, it's not at all. Actually, I see a lot of commonalities and and maybe just different experiences, different approaches, but in the end, if you look at the foundation, there's, you know, the it's there's really a lot of connections. And, and I can also say that you have helped me see things from perspectives I would not have seen otherwise that also helps me to approach some situations that I approach even differently or with more richness. Well, and I, and I also, I think all of that is, is absolutely correct. I would also say, you know, we talked early on about the intellectual curiosity and, and how important that is. I think that the diverseness of our experience 
also helps us to be more open to other people's perspectives. Those experiences have helped you to understand that just because it's not done the way you would do it or it's not thought about the way you would think about it, people still have success. I've traveled all over the world and been steeped in the cultures in which I have encountered. And that gives me different perspectives to understand that even if someone disagrees with me, the route, the position from which they are approaching a problem set helps drive how they see solutions to that problem set. It's not about disagreeing with me. It's about seeing things differently. Thank you, Parker, for a great conversation. And even though there were some things I had heard before, there I also heard new things today and learned even more about you. So, this is really- Well, again, it's my pleasure. And thanks for inviting me to do this. I hope that this is of some benefit to your listeners and that you know they're able to, to get at least a couple nuggets out of that. Thanks again. I'm your host, Raquel Arp from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with others for more practical and inspiring stories and examples so that we can catalyze a listening movement together. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.